0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome uh, to the LSE for this hybrid event. I am Andres Rodriguez-Pose, and I am the Princesa de Estudios professor and a professor of economic geography and director of the Cañada Blanche Centre here at the London School of Economics and political science, and I'm thrilled to give my, and to extend my warm welcome to both our online audience and the audience that has been gathered here in this Shakespeare Theatre to listen to our very, very special uh, guest, Danny Dorlin, who I'm eager to introduce and who's going to be conducting this lecture jointly delivered by the LSE Department of Geography and Environment and the Kanyala Blanche Center. So Danny Dawling needs no introduction, but uh, for those of you that don't know him, he is the, or holds a prestigious Harford Mackinder Professor of Geography position at Oxford University, the University of Oxford, and he has had a remarkable career in which he has very much influenced, and I wouldn't say influenced, he has shaped the landscape of British and world Uh, Geography. He has uh, led groundbreaking discussions on topics like inequality, poverty, marginalised populations. I would say that, at least in my case, but I think in the case of many other geographers and many other people across the world, he has reshaped the perception of maps, how we look at maps, how we define maps, and our perception of cities. What is a city, and where a city? Gets its limits. Says London, just what is between the or within the M25, or does it extend from Hull all the way to to Bristol? Mm. And on top of that, he is so prolific that he has had seminal contributions that span areas such as housing, health, employment, education, and of course, poverty. In addition to his academic work, Danny is a very frequent contributor to various media outlets, including The Guardian and The New Statesman, He also serves as advisor to the government and the Office of National Statistics. And among his extensive portfolio of books, he has notable titles like All That Is Solid, Population 10 Billion, So You Think You Know About Britain, Injustice, and of course, his seminal work about the 1% which is, I think, fundamental here. Today, he will share insights about his latest work, this uh, book that I have here, and that many of you would be interested in reading because it's absolutely thrilling, Shattered Nation, Inequality, and the Geography of a Failing State, and you will see which is the failing state. For those of you who are on X, uh, formerly Twitter, our hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSEShatteredNation and please tweet generously, it's good to get engaged in this sort of activities. And uh, please note that this event will be recorded and will ideally be available as a podcast bearing any technical issues that we may have. Hopefully none, yeah, everything seems to be working adequately. As usual, we'll have a question and answer session at the end during which you can ask your questions to Danny Dorling. and if you're joining us online, simply use the question and answer feature located at the top left of your screen. Please include your name and affiliation, and we especially encourage our students and alumni to participate in this discussion. For those of you in the theater, I will signal when it's time for questions. Please raise your hand and wait for the microphone to come to you. You have to state your name, your affiliation, before presenting your question. We aim to include a variety of questions from both our online and in-person audience. I would say that students will have preference. And when you're asking questions, please ask a question. So Mm -hmm. please do the exercise of starting by saying who, what, when, where, or to what extent and it will make the whole thing far more dynamic. But you haven't come to talk, to listen to me, you have come to talk, to listen to Danny Dorling. So without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce and hand over the lectern to
2: Danny. Danny, of course. Uh, thank you, Andreas, ever so much for that very kind introduction. Uh, thank you for coming tonight. I could make this very depressing, very easily, but I've worked out that that isn't a good way to do it, not least for my own health, rather than yours. Depressing. (laughs) (laughs) We were beginning to run out of names for books. I've written a lot of books with colleagues about a decade ago with Beth and Thomas. I wrote a book with Atlas... Bethan did the maps, I did the words, called Bankrupt Britain. Well that that was a decade ago. So you get to a problem about what are you going to call a book about the state of the nation. Shattered was the best word that I could think of to describe what was happening. This was about three years ago when I began writing uh, the book. So I thought we were shattered then. And I thought my job then was to try to convince other people that we were shattered, people who thought that if we just pushed on one more step, we could get through the fog and emerge and see ahead of us the sunlit uplands. And it was just a little bit more grit that was needed. At the time I began writing this book, Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, and he was remarkably good at painting a picture of optimism, of, you know, pull yourself up by your braces, don't worry your little heads too much about the detail, trust me and my colleagues, we will be there in the future. His resignation speech echoed a promise by George Osborne that was made in 2015 when George said, If you follow my economic plan, then by the year 2030, the UK will be the most prosperous large nation in the world. 2030. I think George Osborne actually believed it. I suspect George doesn't think now that what he said then was true. Because I think George is quite clever. I think you'd have to be not clever to believe that actually it would be possible for the UK by the year 2030 through some miracle to become the country, and George specified it, the country with the highest GDP per capita of all medium and large nations. Uh, He made his Secretary of State go to the TV studios that night to defend the promise The poor person who had to defend and explain the promise was a not very well-known MP at the time called Matt Hancock, (laughs) um, who because he had a master's degree in economics from Cambridge, called himself an economist. Uh, And this is part of the problem of Britain. You know, three years at university is a wonderful thing. An extra year or two doing a master's course is an unbelievable privilege to be allowed to do that. The vast majority of the world's population are never allowed to do that. But you don't walk out at 21 or 23 knowing the answers to everything. But there's a danger in the way that we run things in Britain with our elite structure of universities that we kind of tell people, you know, you come to the very top ones, and, you know, Three years and a master and you can run a country. You know, we have masters in governance. I'm being a bit cynical and I'm old now. But other countries don't have this attitude that in three years you know everything. You have to do PPE. I think Liz pictured here did PPE at Merton. At my university, having been mean to Cambridge. So there I am, writing a book about a country which I've drawn maps of and calculated statistics for for all my adult life, trying to work out how to explain to people who think that if we just try a little bit harder, we can get those lazy workers to be a little bit more productive and we can free our banks and allow them to have the capacity to do things which banks in the rest of Europe are not allowed to do because they have something called prudence and being careful. And we have the Edinburgh Accords. And if we can take back control, we can take our rightful place again. George Osborne didn't want to take back control. You know, George knew that this wasn't a sensible thing to do. Johnson Umdenard, he wrote two versions of his piece for the Telegraph before he decided which way he was going to jump. And he clearly jumped the way that was most likely to get him what he really wanted, which was to be Prime Minister. So, from his point of view, he made the right decision. It's just the effect on the rest of us. But he fell apart, slowly, painfully. He had a war, he didn't have to start it, which I did wonder at the time of the 2019 election whether he would have to find a small country somewhere where we needed to go in heroically to save things at the last minute in case people were concentrating too much about what was happening at home, but he didn't need to start a war, war was started. He got a pandemic, which is great for blustering Churchillian-type leaders who like being at the pedestal. And I'm being mean to him, but you can see I get a feeling for what it's like to be allowed to pontificate every day at 5.30 or whatever right i've forgotten all those three words slogans it's kind of like stay calm and carry on wasn't it space place whatever that's the geography gcse curriculum um i apologize for that part of the curriculum we can make it more fun anyway nine point question so i'm writing this book But as I'm writing a book about a country being shattered, those in charge shatter. There's a contest. The contest is won by Liz Truss. Liz paints herself as a a hero of those from the underside. Liz Truss went to a really, really rough school in Leeds, a state school in Leeds, an appalling school in Leeds. Liz Truss went to the school that my mother went to, Roundhay the most elite state grammar in Leeds. But it's easy enough if you mix with people who don't go to normal schools to imagine that there's something wrong with your school. Liz still believes, I think, that if she'd just been given more than 49 days, the miracle would have occurred. I mean, she has to, in a way. What does she do? Does she turn around and look at herself in the mirror and say actually everything I believe between the ages of about 23, 24 through to when at 55 Tufton Street they were wooing me because I was the new messiah through to when I got to sack the cabinet secretary and hire all my friends from these think tanks who had told us for years that if if only we did what they said it would all be fine and then those evil communist international bankers (laughs) Pull pulled the plug because there is a conspiracy. There is a conspiracy against So there I am. The lettuce has outlasted Liz and I have a manuscript which isn't really necessarily needed anymore because you know. You know that we have to borrow money at a higher rate than anybody else in Europe. You'll know last week that if you, like me, happen to follow the interest rate that we as a country have to borrow at is 5% for 30 years because we're not a safe country to invest in. So what did I do with the book? I put anecdote in it and tried to make it more fun and I put hope, lots and lots of hope in it because I, I thought for many reasons that was necessary because once you're at a position and I'm assuming most of you think that things are very bad in this country, but you will in the next half hour. I've got nine more slides. No, you know, no graphs. I thought, well, one graph. One graph. It's very good for me, one graph. When things are as bad as they currently are, you need hope. When a lot of people don't agree that they're bad, then you need reality, description, explanation. You need to convince people who think, oh, the poor are just feckless. If they tried a bit harder, they'd be fine. That may not actually be the case, but I suspect most of you know that. So I put in anecdote about my own life, which I'll tell you a little bit about, and I put hope into this book, which has a very depressing title. Failing, not failed. A failed state is a very, very different thing it would be remarkable if the UK or whichever bits of the UK are left, if some splinter off, were to ever become a failing state, a failed state, Uh, but we are currently the state in Europe with the worst statistical record on more indicators than any other in terms of various trends. We're the only state to see life expectancy fall lower in 2015, 16, 17 and 18 than it was in 2014. The only one to see infant mortality fall at some point, sorry rise at some point, points. and now I think there are only five countries in Eastern Europe with higher neonatal mortality rates than us. Stephanie Flanders in February of this year. On Bloomberg News, quotes the statistics that the poorest fifth of people in the UK are poorer than the average of the poorest fifth in Eastern Europe. We are peripheral. Why do you not feel it? You are unlikely to feel it if you're sitting in a lecture theater in London tonight because we're so divided. We're so divided that for those of us who are better off, The issue is, why can't I get the same kind of house that my parents had? Why do I have to have a smaller one that costs a million pounds, right? Believe me, if your biggest problem is you're having to get a house that's costing a million pounds, you do not have a huge problem. But you may feel you do. It's because society is so divided that you can have a situation where things get this bad And some people still don't accept that they're very bad. The book begins with a story of where I grew up. I was born in 1968 in the city of Oxford. My mum and dad lived on Church Cowley Road next to Cowley Centre. It was a respectable area, very respectable. They had lived and probably conceived me in a slum called Jericho because they were hippies on a road with reputed to have three brothels. So they had to move before this baby was born because you wouldn't bring a baby up there. Uh, They were students, slightly hippie students, which might explain me, but we moved to Church Cowley Road. Now, if you know Oxford, and it's unlikely you, you do, the road on which I was conceived, the tiny terraces now go for a million, It's the most boutique interior area. And the area where I first grew up, Cowley is kind of looked at as a bit dangerous, even though it isn't. Because it's where associate professors might just be able to buy a house if they're on a very good salary but don't have family money. And people were smiling. Now, of course, we all hopefully remember our childhood as people were happy and they were smiling. But there was full employment. If you didn't like your job, you could tell your boss to shove it and go and get another one. That's what full employment means. It means that they're actually desperate for workers and full well-paid employment. You could get a house at the age of 24 and start a family and get a mortgage. In the case of an incredibly large number of people, or if you didn't want to get a mortgage, or you couldn't get a mortgage, we had a housing system which was the envy of the world. A little bit earlier, in 1946, the majority of the birth cohort, studied of those born in that year, grew up in a council house at one point or another. We had cleared the slums, we had rebuilt. We were a well-housed population. There was still cafe come home and people worrying about it, but we'd never had a situation, and the housing was cheap. The rent in the council, council housing was cheap, and that's a third of your population, but the house prices were cheap. And the houses weren't that old. In Oxford, there's 1930s semis. I'm talking about the 1970s. Now it is only the best paid university academics who can afford to buy the same houses. Much older, much more dilapidated, that car workers could buy in the 1970s. Our health was the envy of the world. Throughout the 1950s, 1960s, and into the first half of the 1970s, we ranked by life expectancy about seventh, maybe sixth. But the countries above us were also tiny that put together they were smaller than the UK. So realistically, we were number one. We had the lowest infant mortality rate. Where I was born, there were baby incubators in the John Radcliffe. They were new. This was National Health Service. Other countries didn't have baby incubators at the same time, or an infant mortality rate of 11 per thousand. We were doing staggeringly well. This is the 1970s. This is not the 1970s of Dominic Sandbrook because he wasn't there, he's too young. It's not the 1970s that Liz Truss wrote about because she wasn't there, she was too young. It's not the 1970s of, to be honest, privately educated, slightly smug TV commentators who have no idea what they're talking about because they weren't there. And because the story that they have been told about the 70s was how terrible it was because there were lots of strikes, there was inflation, and their parents' wealth went down. But average real real wages rose more than inflation in most years in the 1970s. And if the wealth of the rich goes down, is that really a terrible thing? It fell apart. You could argue 1974, 1977, I would argue 77, 1979. Mrs. Thatcher came in, but it had begun to fall apart before then. She redistributed the tax system so that the rich were taxed far, far less and the poor were taxed more. Things like VAT were increased The overall tax burden when she left in 1990 was identical to what she came into in 1979. She didn't reduce taxes. She didn't raise them. The amount that people were being taxed was the same. It's just that the poor were being taxed more and the rich were being taxed less. And what happened? Inequality rose and rose and rose. I'm not showing you the graph because I assume this is common knowledge. You know that in the 80s the gaps between us grew staggeringly wide. You'll know that there was an enormous strike in 1984 and 1985, which failed, which was actually a battle against what was happening. You may not know that we were rising up the ranks of inequality to go from a situation in the late 70s where, of all the countries of Europe, with a population over about 3 million, we were the second most equal to Sweden. I grew up in a Nordic country called England. I grew up in a Nordic country called England, where amazing things had just happened. For the first time in our history, we had allowed and changed the school system. So that the vast majority of children could go to school with the other children in their street and were not segregated at the age of 11 these were stunning things which we still have debates about was it a good thing I was in a church in Jericho near where I was conceived about three weeks ago uh, with a man called Peter Hitchens debating uh, this and Peter saying how wonderful the grammar school system was because it plucked out the really able, you know. It wasn't. Other countries copied it. The most famous example of a country which came to copy our system was Finland, who came to see what we were doing in the 60s, went back to Finland, abolished their grammar school system, created a comprehensive system and rose to the top of the international league tables of ability by children, the number of languages that people can speak, their ability to solve problems, their mathematical ability. And the lowest variation between schools anywhere in the OECD. And they still have private schools, about 1%. Yes. Because you don't have to ban private schools. All you have to do is make school, state schools better and if a country as poor as Finland can do it. So, I'm not showing you any graphs about the 80s, I'm not going to show you about much of the start of the 90s. What I'm showing you instead is what happened since 1994, which is that inequality, as measured by the OECD, flatlined, essentially flatlined. But other countries were improving inequality has fallen in the majority of European countries. Not much, but enough for its progress and its hope. And I promised you hope. Inequality has fallen in the majority of countries worldwide, within the countries, in the last 15 years. Inequality worldwide by income, of course, has fallen because China has moved up, right? There are lots of terrible things going on in the world, but you step back, and look at how much money people have to live on, what the gap is between them and their neighbors, how much the elite are taking. In general, it is a good news story more than it is a bad news story for the vast majority of the world's population. We still have a billion living in abject poverty. We have those billionaires who Oxfam will tell you every January at Davos, how much the billionaires that fit on the bus own of the planet at the extremes we have terrible stories but once you go within those extremes you're looking at the six or seven billion people just below the multimillionaires their lives are better than their parents and the snobbery, ignorance, racism sexism, the differences that their parents had to endure are not as bad for them. doesn't mean it's great but it does mean it is spectacular in some ways. The country a few years ago with the lowest infant mortality rate in the world was Finland. The lowest mortality rate the human species had ever achieved. Those are the kind of things that are worth measuring because that is a measure of how many grieving parents there are. So what happened? Well you've read the quote by now, I gave you enough time so I won't read it out for you. And It's tricky to know what happened. John Major, by the way, did a good job. I think it doesn't really need to be acknowledged that, that John Major, when yeah. you step back and look at it, did a good job in all kinds of ways. Not least uh, getting rid of half our nuclear bunkers secretly, because he believed we couldn't win a nuclear war. You really do want a Prime Minister who doesn't think you can win a nuclear war. Right? John Major didn't think we could win a nuclear war. Tony Blair. Tony Blair. He wanted to win, he needed to win. He was about winning. He went to Fetters, the eater of Scotland, but with a slightly more military bent as a school. And he's seen the years of failure of Labour. And so he moved the Labour Party to the right. And he promised for the first two years in 1997, 1998, I think a little bit in 1999, to stick to Conservative spending plans. Gordon Brown was going to take all children out of poverty, wasn't he, but starting with a million. I think he claimed he did, but none of the children of their families noticed because they, they shifted so little over a line that you wouldn't know, and the inequality didn't fall. Those little changes in that graph, none of them are statistically significant in a year from the DWP survey that they are based on. You could have said, well, they stopped it getting worse. But there aren't many countries that were worse. Let's start zooming through stuff and get to hope. So the book, after starting off with anecdotes and talking about the city of Oxford and what a place it was to live in and grow up when I grew up, goes through various places I've lived and how... I noticed things falling apart. Now, the first one was easy, it was Newcastle. I turned up in 1986, I lived there for 10 years. If you turn up in Newcastle in 1986, when 60% of households had no work, you get educated, That's how I learned. I went to a job department, I had brilliant lecturers, but to be honest, for a boy growing up in full employment land of Oxford, at the time if you didn't go there you might never think it happened what i've tried to do in the main part of this book is to take each of Beveridge's five evils and talk about them in in a modern language because the word want it's the name of one of the children in uh, christmas carol that william beveridge picked for his report in 1942 much better to call it hunger 56% of children in the UK who have a brother and a sister or brother and a brother or sister and sister are going hungry two or three times a month at least at the moment. Majority of children in the UK in a family of three or more, most of three, are going hungry two or three times a week. Not peckish, actually properly hungry. We haven't had statistics like this since the 1930s. Hope, what can you do? Well, you can look at what other countries do, which we never do. You can look at the rest of Europe and see how they deal with issues such as how you provide food so that there is always food at a basic price you can pay for dignity. So you do not have to rely on food banks or soup kitchens the reason that Peter Hitchens and I were doing a debate about things like grammar schools in the church three weeks ago was to raise money for what they call a pantry in Jericho, in an area where the houses, the terraces now cost a million pounds, but people are going hungry. My favourite example in the book, maybe not the most realistic, you can look at France or Germany for what they do, that is Greece. I think it was 2014 when Greece brought in its most interesting price controls. Of course, it had already, always had some price controls on food, basic foodstuffs that you can't charge more than. But I think it was 2014 when they, they decided that nobody would be allowed to sell a cheese toastie on the beach in Greece for more than €1.40. The price of cheese toasties are controlled on the beaches of Greece. Uh, I think it's 20 cents more if you want ham in it. Frappuccinos, espressos, coffee, whether hot or cold, with or without milk. The legislation is quite detailed, and not just at beaches, but at cinemas, at waiting stations, at where the trains and the buses are, in in all public places. Not just the food you buy in the supermarket having a control of the most basic so that you can just don't have to go hungry. But the food that you might like to buy and the drinks that you might like to buy if you want to go out to socialise so that you can still socialise. We still talk about such things as ridiculous. They <laughs> At the moment we do. What do we do if the pound falls? What are we going to do if the pound falls? Most of our food is imported. Well, we can look there to do it. There are, there are numerous ways, and I'm going to end with the most effective way. No child this winter in Scotland will go cold or hungry. That's, that's where you're going to the hope at the end. That all kinds of things are possible. That's me making sandcastles. So if anybody wants to know how to make drip castles, you can do them for hours. The tide comes in and washes them away at the end. Squalor, precarity, I'm trying to be optimistic, that's why I've put the sandcastles in there. Squalor was the old evil of slums, poor housing. Now we have precarious housing in London. So a third of children are now living in the private rented sector, moving on average every three years, which means that you lose all your friends and you have to go to a different school every three years, which is about the worst thing you can do to a child. We never meant... When we began to try to grow the private rented sector again, the sector that we destroyed because we didn't like slums, we never meant for it to become a tenure full of children. But of course it did. But don't worry, you're going to get two months' notice. I mean, it's just evil. It's it's just wrong. Not having rent regulation, rent controls, not having any rights is just wrong. And the hope. Well, it's not hard to find. You know, I could get you to shout out a European country and I'll tell you their policy on this, but they don't let human beings be treated in this way. You pay your rent and you can stay. Oh, and they can't increase their rent by an arbitrary amount. It's basic, it's simple. Various politicians have promised it. It's been in manifestos. We still don't have it. It's easy. We have more bedrooms per person in the UK, in London, as measured by the 2021 census, than we have ever had. We don't have enough builders. We can't afford to buy the concrete. We can't get the iron girders to build 300,000 homes a year, even if we actually meant to do it. Or we thought the building firms, who have been so successful at lobbying Labour at their conference, even if you actually believed they would do it. But you don't need to. Housing's there. You just need to tweak with a tax system so that somebody who thinks they really need two second homes or a holiday home and another one might be persuaded that they don't want to pay that most extra tax and they might just get rid of that home that they only use for a few weeks a year. Doesn't take much. It would help to build housing for people in old age with no stairs near to where they live so that when you are stuck in a four or three bedroom house in London on your own and you're 75 and you're lonely but you're there because it's near where your friends are, those who are still remaining, not the ones who've died. And you can't pay for the heating, so you're going cold, but you stay in the house because you're going to give an inheritance to the children. What you need is nearby, very nice apartments, no stairs. If you get to my age, you'll understand about no stairs. It's just the beginning of why you really don't want stairs. But nearby, not what the Green Party say in Oxford, which is go to Newcastle right that really doesn't work It was fine for me at 18 to go to newcastle it was brilliant it doesn't work for somebody in old age you have to build some housing but build the apartments for people who are old to move out don't force them just make it sensible and the freeing up of that free bed family home then has a knock-on effect for whatever the family that needed that home were living in cramped, and that frees up another one, and before you know it, the person sleeping rough on the streets in Oxford can again live in that crappy bedsit on Leopold Street, which is where they lived, their equivalents in the 80s and the 90s, which they cannot live in now because somebody's painted it and some students who are the children of multimillionaires from Silicon Valley are living there, right? It's a chain. Idleness was the old evil of mass unemployment. Uh, mainly men, mainly of middle age. Uh, I've renamed it, Waste, in this book, The Wasting of People's Lives. We no longer have mass employment. We have the lowest rate of unemployment, I think, in Europe, because you can't be unemployed because you would die. Uh, not quite, but... Well, have you, do you know how much you'll get as a single person age 23? You couldn't actually live on it. Which is why people do second and third jobs, and jobs they don't want to do, and things they really don't want to do. And we sanction people into this. And we have huge numbers of people doing jobs that they know are a waste of time, trying to persuade people to do things they don't want to do, to buy things they don't want to buy. It's not productive. Ignorance. The old problem about what our schools are doing, I think, has transformed into exploitation. Only Chile spends more on private education than we do. Only Chile does. The rest of the, of Europe, the mainland, do not divide their children. You do not pay money so your children do not have to mix with other children. Let's be clear what it is about. Right? It's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly wasteful of teachers. Far more than 7% of all teachers are in those schools that 7% of children go. Teaching assistants, caretakers, if you have 184 schools that children cannot go into certain rooms or all of it, and certainly not into the hall because the hall may come down on their heads at any moment, you might just look at the spare capacity that the educational buildings that we've got. Sounds revolutionary. You would encourage it by, you know, maybe look at your charitable status and do something charitable given that the school down the road, the roof could fall on the children's heads at least at least we're not making the children sit there. I'm not going to go on about universities and exploitation, just to say that the most controversial statistic in the book is the claim that the average fees for undergraduates in England and Wales are the highest in the world. People always want to say, oh no, they're higher in the USA. They're not, I won't go in They're not, I'll leave it at that. We've actually managed to beat the USA for having the most expensive, highest education, higher education in the world. And that's the cap, 9,250. That's not the master's fees, unregulated, not the fees for doing a PhD. And what are they talking about at the moment? What are the grown-ups in the room talking about? The sensible people, the ones who wouldn't listen to me and won't tell you? They're talking about lifting the 9,250. Because our world-leading universities really ought to be able to charge forty, fifty, sixty thousand pounds a year, because it would just reflect the quality of our education, wouldn't it? yeah that's where we're at. Disease and fear. There's five of these, so you'll you'll be glad to see that I am rattling through them. We did very well with disease. We did very very well. We faced a crisis in the 1930s. The middle class couldn't afford to pay the doctor anymore. The charity, charitable hospital sector was a mess, inefficient. The private sector wasn't treating the people who actually were ill. We still had workhouses. We got rid of them in 1948, at the same time as we established the National Health Service. And it worked brilliantly. But then we began to tinker with it, take it apart, introduce competition, the purchase the provider models, with a terrible act in 2012, which we have partly reversed last year. Fear, mental health, taking antidepressants. The statistics are all awful. Uh, If I was gonna add one more graph, but I'll describe it to you. Do you remember when David Cameron introduced the concept of maximizing happiness and said he would make everybody happy? And he ordered the Office of National Statistics to measure it, to check. Uh, Well, they did. And they measured life satisfaction, levels of anxiety and so on as best as they could. ONS produces a series it comes out several times a year about how happy we are I'll, I'll do the graph with my hand. so this begins around about 2012 after Cameron said uh, you've got to imagine Cameron tie-off cufflinks on Clegg tie off cufflinks on Blair tie off cufflinks on there's pattern um, call me Dave must not be cynical but, But it's part of the shattering, this kind of, you know, let's put it bluntly, the posh boys will save us. But it's kind of the last thing that happens before you finally go, no, that's not not working. Happiness index. It rose 2013, 14, 15, 16. Partly because we were coming out from that crash of 2008, which was very bad for us. It stayed high in 2017, and you're thinking, how can people have been happy in 2017? That was awful, we had a referendum and everybody voted the wrong way. (laughs) Well, they didn't think that, right? 52% finally got what they wanted. And the other 48% thought that they were gonna get what they wanted, because of course you always turn these referendums around. That's what the rest of Europe does when people vote the wrong way, right? And there was a new leader of the Labour Party in 2015, And quite a lot of people liked him. Half a million joined his political party. Huge increase of votes in 2017. The biggest swing per year we've ever measured. Per year, okay, I'm cheating slightly because 1945 was 10 years from 1935, but 2017 was unbelievable. So those folk who liked Labour were happy. And those folk on the right who believed that really we simply had to let the market go unfettered and Britain would take its rightful place in the world because there's something naturally superior about us. And we know there is because we have an empire. And how could we have got an empire if we weren't born to rule? They were happy because their politics was coming in, because Tony Blair had moved the Labour Party to the right and squeezed the Conservative Party way, way, off. It left the European Conservatives in 2014. It joined a group with Alternative for Deutschland and other fascists. We didn't notice. And then it kept on moving to the right. The Financial Times has measured, and with a set of academics from around the world, measured the political position economically of every political party in every rich country in the world and every middling country in the world, every party. And the party that is economically most right wing in the planet is the Conservative Party of the UK. Right? That, if I was showing you graphs, you'd be sick of this and you would be worrying he's never going to (laughs) stop, as you can see. There are, for free, if you're feeling cheated, Google Shattered Nation, there's a website, Uh, the 150 graphs which are not in the book are on the website for free. Why haven't I put them in the book? Two reasons. People don't buy books with graphs in them or read them. They, they are, we are a nation who does very badly at maths, problems. people don't like the graphs. And also, if you were to flick through the book and look at the graphs, you'd think, oh, he's just fix this. Like, they can't all be doing that. Right? So, <laughs> so I thought better, better not put them in. Okay, hope. And we do need hope. And We should have hope because, I mean, cynically, when you are, if you think of Europe as a class of 30 or children, when you're at the bottom, the only way is up. Right? The Finns should be worrying. Right? But really, more statistically, Scotland. We don't report on Scotland other than when somebody buys a camper van without the right receipt. Terrible co- corruption, that camper van. We did nothing in England that would even compare to that camper van. That's what you know about Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, Nicola had two great aims. One was independence, Uh, the other was getting rid of poverty. Nicola, I think she might be about my age, not my class, I'm a posh boy, she grew up in Glasgow in a normal family. She liked Wham, she didn't like poverty, in a more serious way than Gordon Brown. So, during the cost of living crisis, the Scottish Government met every week in their equivalent of Cobra. They did various things to stop landlords being able to evict people and they introduced the Scottish child payment, an extra payment. In Scotland all children get child benefit by the way, they call it the rape clause which is why we don't have it in England for the third or fourth child. Uh, If you can prove you've been raped you can get child benefit for your third child in England. In Scotland they all get child benefit but they introduced a special extra Scottish child payment of £10 a week for all children under six in any families receiving benefits. And then in November, they increased it once, but then in November of last year, they increased it to 25 pounds a week for every child in your family under 16, if you are claiming any forms of welfare, which is two out of seven children in Scotland. For a family of three in Scotland claiming any kind of welfare benefits, that is 3,900 a year. Not tapered, nothing is taken away because you get that extra money. No child in Scotland this winter goes hungry or cold. Entirely affordable, costs far less than what most countries on the mainland of Europe are doing. They've made sacrifices, they're not looking after the old, they're not necessarily looking after other services as much as done, they decided to concentrate on the children in Scotland. What are we trying to do? We're trying to stop them doing it, right? That only a shattered nation would you have a Westminster government going, we can't have that. It's unaffordable. And what would be the incentives for their parents to go out and work or find work if they know their children aren't going to go hungry? That's where we are. That's where we've got to dig our way out of. So Hope, two more slides. Sorry. Yeah, this is the moment, I think, when he realized that maybe, anyway.
0: That
2: happy feeling didn't come all over him at that point. Um, sorry, I must not do this, And uh, no. must not. I don't know. If you're gonna do jokes about a shattered nation, it's just not unfair to put them on a cup, really. Is it? Not, you're not kicking down, are you? Um, Raymond Williams, 1989 It is in making hope practical rather than despair convincing that the way to peace can be entered It's very easy to make despair convincing It's very easy to say absolutely terrible and unbelievable things are going on in the world It's very easy to say if you look at our record of what we have done over the decades, we are still on the track to become Singapore on Thames, which means as unequal as Singapore, which is more unequal than the UK, although at least Singapore now is trying to address inequality. In Singapore, you have maids, you have servants. They now give them Sunday afternoon off, which is nice. But you can't get pregnant. could get worse. We could move to be like the United States. We might have the highest prison population in Europe, but... We need to imprison many times more if we're going to get up to the U.S. to 2 million. We could have the eviction rates of Baltimore. We could have the drug use, the opiates and the equivalents of the opiates. We could have the antidepressants uses of Beverly Hills. don't think the rich get away well in the U.S. Um, but I don't think so. Every pay deal that I've seen in the last 12 months has been progressive. Often they're less than inflation, but the people on the lowest pay have got most, and the people on the top pay have got often almost nothing at all. Top civil servants since 2008 are getting by on 25% less than they had in 2008 in real terms. Lower grade civil servants, 12% less. Yes, everybody's suffering, but for the first time since the 1930s, the gap is narrowing. Communication workers, British Telecom. 2019, everybody got a 3% pay rise. That's the standard union deal. 3% pay rise, inflation was what, 2%? You're a bit better off. But of course, if you're a high paid telephone engineer, 3% of your salary is much more in real terms as a, as a chunk of money than 3% at the bottom. Communication workers union now, the most incredibly complicated tiered structure my union. We failed in our dispute, which means that some of the best paid people in universities are not going to get an extra 1 or 2% more, which actually increases equality. I can give you lots more, uh, but I'm coming to the end. And often the things that are good are not seen as good. So people say, why don't you give more policies? Well, I could give you more policies, but a lot of you wouldn't like them, which is partly why we don't get them. When you actually suggest targeting the top 10%, who currently take 40% of all income and taxing them slightly more, you get the Guardian newspaper stopping supporting your political party, which is what occurred in 2019. Why did the Guardian stop supporting the party that was gonna tax the rich more? Because if you're at the top of the Guardian, that's your salary. And let's be blunt or cruel about it: you might do Camden Girls if you can get in the catchment area, and your kids get the GCSEs to stay in Camden Girls. But more likely, it's North London Collegiate, and that costs a lot of money. And the money you need to help your children get a mortgage costs a lot because the freebed house in Fulham is now going for more than a million. So, if Labour were to have got in in 2019, or anywhere near it, your life would change at the top of the Guardian newspaper, right? This is kind of, I'm not having to go at the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and the Times, uh, but then, this quote is from 1986, from Flatcliffe Havel, hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. You don't have to be optimistic to be hopeful. It's a thought I want to leave you with before you grill me and tell me I've gone on far too long. It's not the conviction that something will turn out well but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. Right. I think it is certain that we've gone down the wrong road. It doesn't work. The sunlit uplands are not around the corner. We will not become the highest growth country as Keir Starmer has promised to the G7 even though our growth rate is really low so you could. These are, we are in a bad, bad, bad way and we're gonna to have to get out of it in a way that is hard and is gonna involve sharing what we've got because the money has run out. And it's that realization, in a way it doesn't really matter who wins the election next year. They've all got the same situation. We can't borrow anymore because the bankers don't trust us. We're gonna to have to share what it is we've got. But we're a rich country. We've got more housing than we've ever had. We've got more teachers, more teaching assistants, more schools. We've got incredible numbers of doctors and nurses. just hundreds of them are working in sectors you have to pay to be allowed to use. It's not as if the Luftwaffe has just come over and bombed London. We've actually got what we need. But the standard model of people like me keeping what we've got and telling the young and the students to borrow more money for the future, because don't worry, one day you'll be so rich, you'll be able to pay off that student loan. And one day you'll be able to buy my house for a million pounds. They're not going to be able to buy the houses. Right? It's ended. We need to realise it's ended, and use hope and work out what it is we're going to do. The faster we do that, rather than say silly things, as Hunt said at the last budget, Britain is and always has been a force for good in the world, right? We've got to stop saying the silly things. I mean, we've got to stop electing the people who believe the silly things. Because we've run out of money, and it is quite serious, because a majority of children with a brother and a sister are going hungry two or three times a month, because the school roofs are falling down, because it's just reached the end of the line. When we finish the questions, Going to play you a song from 1983 uh, about the beginnings of the shattering and what happened then. But thank you ever so much for letting me talk.
0: Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we
1: afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ
0: wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Danny, for a very interesting, thought provoking uh, presentation. I'm still trying to find where's the hope and where's the optimism, but I'm sure there's a lot there. And uh, we can go now to questions. Uh, we're going to have questions for the audience and questions online. Uh, uh, we're going to start by with questions from the audience. Please state your name and your affiliation. And uh, anyone who looks like a geography student would have priority. So we'll start over there. <laughs> yes, you, you are. I've look uh, behind. So where's the microphone? Yeah.
0: Hello. Uh, my name's Catherine. I did my master's in inequality at the LSE. Thanks for a really interesting uh, lecture. Um, I'm wondering, you've noted that we need to stop voting for the people that are inflicting a lot of this uh, these problems on our country. The problem is less focusing on poverty and bringing up the bottom, but focusing on the middle um, and relative poverty. I just wondered if, what your thoughts were on that. Thank you.
2: Yeah. One of my 150 graphs is done by Torsten Bell and the Resolution Foundation. And Torsten was very chuffed when he divided the population into 20 groups. And he has the most amazing rainbow-coloured graph. Uh, but it isn't required because 19 of those 20 bars are going down and only one, the top 5%, is getting better off in the latest year. So everybody is now being hurt. This isn't like the 80s where where a third of society got much better off, almost doubled their living standards by the end. So of course they voted for the government, loyally. (coughs) Most people are worse off. Our cost of living crisis is now set to beat the worst one ever in recorded history, which is the 1798 cost of living crisis, which didn't end until 1822. We're actually on track to exceed that. We're not gonna get back to 2008. For those who are poorest, things cannot get much worse. For people who are homeless, they can't get much worse. Although you're gonna be seeing more people on the streets in the months to come. That's on the dashboard of the department for leveling up. I right? know it's happening. And of course it's happening because rents are going up in their biggest increase ever. Why are rents going up? Because the landlords think that they have to charge more because their standard living is going, is going down. So this is all about the middle and people quite high up. I have conversations with people who send their children to a private school who only just managed to do that, have to make all kinds of privations to do that and you tell me that they're poor. Now they're not poor. They have enough money to make that choice, but they think that they are poor. But you've got a society with, the hurt's really, really spread out, and then you've got a fearful group at the very top. Friend of mine keeps on asking me, who's very wealthy, why don't they pick up the pitchforks? just can't understand it. Um, So you have fear at the top, fear that this will be taken away, fear that a wealth tax will be introduced by a government competent, uh, which the current one, you know, was unhopeful. Um, There is no prime minister who knows more about the tax system and ways in which people might try and avoid paying it than our current one. (laughs) He, well, what's he worked for? The the companies he worked for, if you look at his record. If Rishi Sunak wants to beat Israeli, and he shows signs of it, hence trashing the environmental targets, you know, suggests he might actually want to not do badly at the election, I'm not in favor of that, but imagine if he stood up after the budget in the autumn, after Hunt in his last 30 seconds, rather than saying Britain has always been a force for good in the world in our history, instead say things are so bad that we're going to introduce a sovereign Prince Charles Levy, or whatever you call it, copied on the Spanish wealth tax. Only the very rich will pay it, it's temporary. And then Sunak stands up and says, and in fact, I'm the only member of this house who's going to pay it, but I very happily will pay it. What does Starmer do? What does Rachel Reeves do if the Conservatives were to do this? You can see I'm, I verge on optimism, you know, unlikely but they've run out of money. When they gave BMW in Oxford the 75 million pound bung not to leave a few months ago, on the same day they cut the social security budget of the country by 250 million. And it wasn't because they were vindictive. They had to give that signal so that our interest rate wouldn't rise if it looked like we were splashing money around. Uh, So yeah this is way across the spectrum but, and yeah people as well as, as me will say that it, m- my salary has gone down a huge amount in the last two years right. but it the great thing about studying inequality is somebody like me cannot give a damn about his salary going down you know because at least i've got an idea of how well off i am but many academics don't they compare themselves to bankers They say, oh, they compare themselves to academics in the past, when the equivalent to me at Oxford and the rest of my department of geography would be living in the very big houses north of Jericho. And the question is, does the boy go to Winchester or Rugby or possibly Eton, right? And of course, they went for the prep to the Dragon, the world's most expensive junior school, right? And you will have academics say, that's the amount we should be paid, and that's how we should be treated in society. And it's terrible that we aren't. So we, yeah, we've just got a lot of working out to do because we've become so extremely unequal again. And it's expensive being unequal. Right? It costs an enormous amount of money having the largest private education sector in Europe. It costs a lot of money to build this many flats in London which people aren't actually living in. It costs a lot of money to have all those holiday homes. It costs a hell of a lot of money to have all the private jets that we have, which have been grounded in a lot of Europe. It costs a lot of money to drive all these cars around, rather than have the 9 euro a month train tickets that they have in Germany. And it's not just Germany. It's really, really expensive, maintaining being really unequal. Uh, But if you believe in inequality, you try to do it. And then you find you can't when the money runs out. I promise my next answer will be really short. <laughs> next question. Yes, over here.
0: Thank you very much. First of all, thank you very much for your lecture. It was incredibly interesting. And uh, I am, my name is Miroslava, and I study here at LSE a bachelor's degree in math and economics. And my question is that, apparently, providing a good education in the first 1,000 days of life really do matter for the child development and further performance in life. So what do you say? That removing the tax exemption for private school fees and putting this money to fund state schools in the UK is something that will make a big difference. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much for the question. So that's the first, the first 1,000 days of education, yeah. of, life, of life. Yeah, there are huge, let's be short. My mum worked most of her life in the preschool playgroup movement, uh, which was a 1970s, 60s thing, which was. Very cheap. Uh, Children played, you had dough, you had water. I I first worked in a play group and then a play scheme. Uh, And the effects are obvious and huge. The reason that Finland beats Norway and Sweden in, in educational terms, despite being much poorer than Norway and certainly poorer than Sweden, is that in Finland they spend the most money on the children who do worse, the quarter who do worse. It's really easy. That's what you need to do. You don't need to spend money on the children who are doing well at school, for your entire country to do well. In fact, if you do spend a lot of money on the children who are slightly better at passing exams, there's a great danger you make those children think that they are special. And then they do terrible things when they become government ministers. Um, And they think they're top cornflakes. And some of them believe in eugenics. so it is just, it is just wasteful. And the, and the early years really matter. We now have an almost entirely privatized early years. The average wage of the women, almost all women, who are working in our nurseries is four pounds an hour. And you might think, how can it be four pounds an hour? That's illegal. They're apprenticeships. They're on the apprentice. They have to go when they, right? four pounds an hour. In effect, a warehouse. In Finland, you need a master's degree. To work with small children because of course you do because small children are the most important thing of all right and it it, it, these things i'm suggesting it's not danny thinks this would be a nice idea these are all things that are currently happening in other parts of europe and there was a time when it was us when we were the place where you could say this amazing thing is occurring could we copy it uh, and, and it's geography, I'm a geographer right? it's not very difficult you just don't look to the US for your models <laughs> you don't go to Cape Cod on a holiday every summer my last dig at Gordon Brown to learn how to do things and, you know, Gordon Brown's heart was in the right place but the outcome is terrible I wrote an article in the Scotsman this summer about the child policy Gordon Brown marched on four days later saying it's terrible, it's wasteful and then luckily the Scottish Labour Party told him to shut up which is progress. Because you can't have the Scottish Labour Party wanting to get rid of a Scottish child payment that will stop all children going cold or hungry in winter. So there are lots and lots of signs of progress. There are lots of things that are turning at the moment. So next question, you've a hit. I'm Thomas and I recently studied politics,
0: not geography I'm afraid.
1: Um, Still time. Yeah, (laughs) I think your example about um, Scotland and what they've done in with child poverty there was quite striking Um, and so on that do you think that sort of top-down party political and government approaches are going to be the best way to
2: make Britain better or do you think there's other sort of grassroots or union based approaches that will be more effective Uh, top-down can only do a few things but they can do dramatic things Uh, like like that, but most of this is gonna be bottom up. Most of it in the past was bottom up. When we, we, our last inequality peak was 1918, the turning around of that was incredibly painful in the 20s and 30s, Uh, but it was local decisions about where to begin to build housing, what housing to allow to build, whether to turn somewhere into a public park that everybody could use. This was all local (coughs) fights and it has to be bottom up. The example I have in the book is Slough, Slough went bankrupt, has to sell everything. It's thankful that we've academised the vast majority of secondary schools because at least local authorities can't sell the schools off. They'd be obliged to, by law. Of course, Birmingham, the largest local authority in Europe has gone bust and has to sell its assets by Christmas uh, to pay the wages. But the sorting out of Birmingham is going to be local. At the moment, we've sent in commissioners. There is no democracy in Birmingham. The councillors have no power. And it's not just Birmingham, there's two dozen others, and there's another two dozen to come. So the rebuilding is is going to be local, and it can start doing things that cost no money at all. Uh, It it is questions about how you're going to let people walk or cycle around the city, or whether you're going to let people with cars drive past others very quickly. Wales has just introduced 20 mile an hour across all the villages of Wales in one swoop. Uh, 30 MPH is normal in Europe. 20 miles an hour, if you're hit at 20 miles an hour, you're almost certainly not gonna die. If you're a child or you're frail or you're small and you haven't got any mass and you're hit at 30 or 35, you'll be seriously interested in the chance you'll die. It's, it's lovely. Striving for a Welsh village is a uh, joy. I mean, they're not very big. Right? So it's not very long to enjoy this. But there's always somebody who's going at 20. And it's quite, you're bang, you're down to 20. And you actually see the village, right? Uh, it doesn't cost a penny. And it's local. Well, that was local to Wales. The 20 miles an hour campaign is the most local campaign, the most successful. Uh, huge amounts. London is mostly 20 miles an hour now. Um, it's, just, it's my favourite example of a successful policy done by Rod and Anna, two people who began it, two people who run it. You know, when people say we can't do anything, there's Rod and Anna, right? That's where 20's Plenty came from. And there are, I can come up with more, um, but you mustn't be up up against the people from 55 Tufton Street telling you that would be no good because our economic models say that the faster the cars can drive through, the more money we'll make and we'll increase productivity and we'll get to the sunlit uplands, right? Every country has people like that, but they control them better, learn how to ignore them. Uh, do it In, in Switzerland, the, the fines for speeding are proportional to your income. We've had footballers who've been fined half a million pounds for going 80 miles an hour. Um, all kinds of things are done, right? But we have a toad-toad hall attitude uh, oh, what did the government say they're going to ban all new all new 20 mile an hour limits will be banned possibly against even if the local parish wants it you have to be at a low to actually have that suggested as a sensible policy this we're like the texas of europe and they and they let's say i can say because i'm english and it's in the book uh i have the spiegel i have numerous uh, quotes from German, French newspapers, they're not laughing at us, it's pity, the reports are full of pity, that, that's, and we mustn't get angry, we must recognise it's got to that point. There's a question coming from the top over there, a gentleman who certainly
1: doesn't look like a geography and environment student, but please correct me if I'm wrong.
0: I hope not to do that, but certainly not an environment student. But as a geographer, Simpson's my name, I'm not of the LSC intelligentsia, by the way. Just a citizen of the world. Um, Yes, the problem of, you mentioned hope and optimism. And my issue with those two terms is that from the amazing explanations you gave on, in terms of economics and the political and social infrastructure of Britain. Do you think the crisis that has been mismanaged since say, Tony Blair, the post new labor, etc., is there really a way out post Brexit for assuming Scotland goes to Europe as a member and you have Wales and England, do you, in your experience, believe there's a way out of this scenario? Yeah. Um,
2: David olin is doing a brilliant series on the union at the moment, uh, which, which, is, which is about this. Northern Ireland's the more likely to leave first, not not least because Ireland's doing so well, uh, but also the unforeseen, yeah. There was always a country that was going to leave the EU first. It could have been Greece with Syriza, but Greece had a land border with Bulgaria. Nobody realized until we left that if you've got a land border, it doesn't work. Uh, So we've kind of done Europe a favor um, in in a way. We've done some poor small country a favor that might have. Nobody is arguing for leaving the EU now in any EU country. The equivalents of UKIP now uh, have very different stories. Uh, Look at the election in in Poland uh, and what's going on. Um, It, I think, in in a sense, I never wanted to believe this, but we we needed enough crises. You know, the banking crisis of two thousand and eight, the prolonged Brexit, kind of slow death crisis, um, handling a pandemic very badly, crisis. hopefully not a sterling crisis although you know who here thinks there won't be a crisis next year of a kind we haven't predicted yet because you're kind of used to crises the turnaround last time and you, you can't history doesn't repeat but it's all we have to go on was 1918 and it was 1918 across europe not in the us but across europe the us didn't turn until the 40s because that war that we began in 1914 was supposed to last a few weeks. And it went on and on and on, and somebody had to pay for it. Uh, the only people who could pay for it were the very rich, they're the only ones with money. We were very subtle about it. We, they donated their houses to the National Trust and their wealth to the coppers. There was a revolution in Russia, trade unions rose up, the suffrage vets rose up. But the, the, the series of crises we had rent strikes, so we got rent controls coming in. But it was a time of crisis, and of course, the UK, England is slipping in terms of being the richest country in the world, losing its empire uh, rapidly. And it may well be that you need a series of crises before the orthodox message that trickle-down will occur, that some people are genetically clever than others and need more spent on their education, that most people are feeble and useless. That model has to run all the way through somewhere Test it to destruction before it begins to be accepted uh, that it isn't. The 1920s and 30s were two very painful decades. There's a man called Hugh Dalton, who was doing a PhD at the LSE. And he was the only one who measured inequality. I mean, his PhD at the LSE at the time. And inequality halved between 1918 and 1939. That was when we achieved most of it. You all have the, the very nice Ken Loach story, and it's partly true. You know, the wonderful 1945 election. Most of it was done before then. Hugh Dalton actually became Chancellor of the Exchequer in, in, as a result of, the, of that election, uh, having been a PhD student at the LSE. So it may be that for a country, set of countries that have gone this extreme, you know, we overtook Portugal in 2009. We are only playing with Bulgaria now to be the most unequal in all of Europe a country that becomes this extreme, the message is so ingrained amongst people who went to schools that taught them certain things, and universities that taught them certain things, and you have a social group where they moved to London at the age of 21, as they all did, who learned certain things at dinner parties and groupthink believe it, that it really has to fail. And even then they say it's a conspiracy of the international bankers, but it's failed. You know, we don't need one more. We don't need somebody playing games with the pounds in the Bank of England to see how much money they can make. I, you know, In a really cold winter in January, where we're worrying about, is the mainland gonna send that bit of gas back to us, the one we sold to them, because the market is the best way to distribute gas that heats people's homes. But I wish we hadn't done it. I wish we turned around in 1997 or 2005 or 2010, or there'd been a few more votes in 2017, or the Guardian newspaper hadn't had the stand it had in 2019. Or even that Boris decided that he actually really wanted to go down in history like Winston and turn his party around during a pandemic when you could have nationalized the private hospitals. you know, Because they would go bankrupt without that. Instead, we bailed them out. They couldn't operate in a pandemic. We bailed the private hospitals out. You could have semi-nationalized the schools um, because it was a pandemic. The opportunity was huge and the, and the people who could have really done it well would have been the conservatives because they would have just said sort of as, as patriotic, you'd have put eight Union Jacks behind you, right? You come up with a right free, free word slogan. You obviously don't use the word nationalize, right? Always could have done it. so but somebody's gonna to have to do it. That's why I don't worry too much about who wins the next election. The options are running out.
1: Well, nationalize our hospitals, so 3 war slogan. I'm conscious of the time, there are a lot of hands, so I'm going to take one more question from the audience and then perhaps questions from online. So there's a gentleman right behind you, so yeah.
0: Thanks very much, I'm Ash, also not of the LSE. I quite I really enjoyed the talk. Um, you mentioned at one point that there were a bunch of policies that you had that we would reject um, if you threw them out. So could you possibly maybe <laughs> say
2: one semi-radical, intra- intelli- intelligent one per each yeah. want? Pick, pick, pick one of those five evils, so you can really test me at random. Um, could you put it to a vote for the audience? Okay, who wants um, that date? Let's go through, there's five. Uh, we haven't got much time, so we might as well just decide on one, settle on one. Yeah, no, no, which, which one? Shout it out. Which evil do you want me to do? Squalor. Squalor housing. Okay, okay, squalor, squalor and housing. Uh, Squatter, squatters housing, okay. Immediate without warning, uh, imposition of rent regulation. Uh, no rents can be raised without you making a case that you have improved the quality of the property such that you should be able to do it. And we're going to bring in inspectors like in the Netherlands who will come and look at the quality of the housing, and decide whether you're charging too much for it as a private landlord. Yay. Right? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the reaction of the landlords is, well, some of the most ridiculous ones go, we'll bulldoze our properties. Well, that's just childish. It's toys and pranks. Right? They will sell. They will sell. And if they sell, that means those of you who'd be trying to buy that house, prices go down because they're trying to sell, you could buy the house. Why is that a good thing? Because when you come to buy a house or a flat, you buy one you fit into just, right, which is efficient. So immediate, instant, could be done tomorrow. Last month, the highest rate increase in rents. Be nice to the landlords, right, they're not all evil, they're mostly amateur. 90 percent when 90 of them have one they're renting out one place right you wouldn't let me run a school you wouldn't let me run a hospital but a complete amateur is allowed to provide a basic service right and the amateurs partly doing it because they're scared of the future they need an insurance they haven't got a pension It's not just for the cruise holidays and going to Tuscany, that is only landlords who've got 20 flats. And it's a quarter of MPs. Um, But the world is not gonna end for landlords if we have fewer landlords. And on average, landlords don't have so many of our properties. It is a really inefficient way to provide housing having private landlords. You can have some, it's fine. Um, but the 1980s that I grew up in was it was either students, and it was a great way of using really dodgy housing because middle-class 18-year-olds, you know, you've got to put somebody in, why not put them? Uh, if you, I was in Benmore, then Fenham, then Lowheaton in Newcastle. Better me than somebody else. They're bulldozed now. Um, or top-end professionals in London. You might just be here for six months or a year. Right? Private renting works for certain groups. It does not work for children in families. Right. Okay, questions from uh,
1: online. So who's got the questions online?
0: Um, hi,
2: we've got a question from Camilla Parra, who is a teacher who asks, what do you think is the reason why the British refuse to look elsewhere for better models in education, health or social welfare? In education, we tell ourselves that we have the best schools in the world and we have the best universities in the world. And so why do we need to look elsewhere? Because we have the best universities in the world and we have the best schools in the world. And it isn't true. You can test young adults at 24 on basic ability like maths. You know, I won't embarrass you by saying, uh, if you're my age, you can do o-, o level and say who got an A at maths, O level. If you're younger, it's GCSE and who got an A. If you're even younger, it's who got an A to a nine. We've got anybody of that age, by the way? Anybody? Hey, great. Oh, we've got quite a few. Yeah, you can explain to the oldies what eights and nines means. Um, right. Now, here's the bad news, right? So you've all got those maths scores. Now, imagine I were to give you a GCSE test right now. Um, you were trained to get the maximum score on the day. Across Europe, our maths ability is, is at the bottom. Um, but we tell ourselves... Um, that we're excellent, so we don't look, because why do we need to look? Because we've got schools that they should come and look at. Um, With healthcare, we tell ourselves that the NHS is still the most wonderful thing. We celebrated the Olympics. We don't actually look at Germany spending an extra billion a week, not 350 million, over a billion pounds or equivalent from euros. We tell ourselves the story about being great, and if somebody like me knocks it, I'm called unpatriotic if i'm sarcastic and you know because we did come second in the olympics yeah it, 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 Don't be mean that you know, i'm not athletic so this is hardly having to go but we do ensure that a very large number of sitting down sports stay you know in um we're number one in the world for the online gambling industry we make more money from online gambling than the usa not not per capita in total right um it, this this patriotism thing, it's really tricky, I can do it with you, I'm white, I'm posh, I'm male. So, but if I wasn't, I couldn't joke about Britain's place in the world and the ranking quite as easily. And that's partly why we don't learn, because we have this, there's something special about us and if you don't understand that, there's something wrong with you. Well, thank you very
1: much. Uh, we have to finish promptly. I'm sure that uh, Danny has been provocative enough. He has whet your appetite to read more of Shattered Nation. And he's going to be signing copies of the book in the foyer outside the theatre. So if you are really, really interested, just go, talk to the author, and you'll get the book signed. We'd like to thank Danny. Thank
0: Thank you for listening.